Hello, and welcome to the Panzer Podcast. My name is John Burgess, and I will be your host today as we deep dive into all things tanks. Right then, hello governor. For today's episode, I thought I would uh, not ever do that accent again. I apologize to everyone. Anyway, I have returned from merry old London, and I must say, I had a great time in the land of cask ales and meat pies and finger sandwiches. I enjoyed as much of the place as I could, as well as celebrate a dear friend's marriage. Did I mention I enjoyed the pubs? What is quite serendipitous is that I have returned from the UK to talk about, well, they, the people from the United Kingdom, you know, the Brits, the Redcoats, Ah, that last one doesn't really work anymore. Or I guess even back then. They were well into their khaki field dress days by the 1940s. So, of course, with enough dithering behind us, and I do love a good dither, we are speaking, of course, of the cruiser tank Mark I, or the M3 Grant, and the last M3 medium tank variant, that we are going to speak about, which was also powered by the R975 radial engine. I know that when I say the last M3 medium tank, several of you may have gasped. We're not quite done with the M3 just yet. Just the first, um, just like the first third of them, or or so. What um, what I find even more hilarious is that we are technically on episode 11 of the second season here. And we haven't even gotten into the M4 Sherman properly. To be fair, all of this preamble is leading up to the inevitable M4 medium tank, the Sherman. We are just, of course, going to take the more circuitous Panzer podcast route to get there. So, much like the ancient Romans might have in the city of Bath, let's go in for a dip. I want to start off our Grant version of the M3 by going over some basic differences, of which there are a few more than one might suspect. Obviously, the outside of the vehicle is identical to the M3 Vanilla, or the Lee version of the tank, with obviously a rather stark and massive difference, the turret. So... Put that bit of knowledge into your back pocket and sit on it for a moment. Uh, You know, or how about, you know, the M3 Grant was only equipped with the model M2 75mm cannon instead of either model M2 or the model M3. No, you didn't know that? All right, then. Let's see if we can't figure out just what makes a Grant a Grant and a Lee a Lee. First off, let's go over some of the production oddities, or maybe not quite oddities, but rather the exclusivity of the British production over the American production. The British M3 medium tanks were produced especially by just the three firms, and three firms alone. There was Pullman Standard, Pressed Steel Car Company, and Baldwin Locomotive Works. There... 
technically would have been a fourth contender here. And an order was actually placed for 400 M3 medium tanks. However, the order would never be fulfilled as Lima Locomotive Works would be hmm, a little bit too busy building the M4 medium tank instead. But, 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 we're getting ahead of ourselves. Quote, The British placed an order for 1,685 tanks. Baldwin received an order for 685, Pullman Standard 500 tanks, and Press Steel getting an order to build a pilot tank out of mild steel to be used for instructional purposes, plus 500 combat tanks. End quote. Thank you, David Doyle. But really, I kind of I love that last bit, which essentially is just an order for 500 tanks and also one mild steel one, you know, like a showpiece. It makes me wonder, was someone in Britain, you know, did they want their own little M3 that they could drive around on the farm? I mean, I would. And really, who wouldn't? I haven't. I haven't personally seen the document, but Mr. Doyle details in his M3 book, which, you know, I've been quoting very heavily through the series along with several other books, but his is the main one for most of this. Uh, He quotes on November 4th uh, in 1940 that there was a handwritten ledger titled Register of Engines Made by the Baldwin Works 1940. This handwritten ledger, it lists the order of both the U.S. Ordnance Department for their original Baldwin vehicles, along with His Majesty's Government in the United Kingdom represented by the British Purchasing Commission, and their original order of 685 M3 medium tanks. There were some other basic orders for the tanks. Um, You know, they, they almost acted kind of like a car dealership. You know, the the uh, upgrades came extra, or in this case, from other producers, to be assembled by Baldwin, Press Steel, and Pullman Standard. Things like, you know, the engines would come from Continental. The transmissions would come from Mack Manufacturing, the armor plate from Republic Steel, and the guns would come from Empire Ordnance. Those kinds of upgrades. Uh, unfortunately, the dealership, they said... No air conditioning or seat warmer upgrade packages available. Not even a cup holder. According to Michael DeWar's own notes in what we tank nerds have so eloquently called the DeWar files. Kind of like the X-Files, only way more niche and, well, Panzer Podcast adjacent. It is worth noting that Mr. DeWar head of the British tank mission to the United States, was in a bit of a tight spot. To put it into a different or perhaps better perspective, one, you know, one might have to recall the, the, the just truly dire straits that the British military, and realistically, the entirety of the British Empire found itself in during those heady days of May in 1940. The BEF that is, the British Expeditionary Force, was nearly wiped out at Dunkirk. Thankfully, the manpower was retrieved, but the equipment? Oof. Big old oof. 
Of the 500 or so tanks that had landed in France to help bolster the, you know, the French defenses uh, against the German advance during the fall of France, I wonder what happens. Spoiler alert, it's not great. But of those 500, only a baker's dozen made it back to Britain. This is what we might call in the business, not ideal. So before I induce some Pax Britannia hate mail, I do not wish to disparage the British manufacturing or just their general industry. However, the demand for war material, which did include tanks, but remember, most of the heavy equipment that the British Expeditionary Force had was now sitting in Nazi-occupied France. This meant that not only were tanks needed, but artillery, machine guns, trucks, all manner of equipment that a nation's army would need to prosecute such an overwhelming undertaking such as the Second World War. All things considered, German bombs were still falling on industrial centers across Britain, though this was not nearly as effective as Nazi propaganda might have you believe. The British industrial capacity at the time was just simply lacking. You know, after the Great War, Britain was not in a wonderful place to continue to expand their industrial capacity. With the war ending in 1918, a massive reduction in war production was forthcoming. Um, you know, that's, and I, I always hear that, you know, about, oh yeah, like war brings all this economy and all this growth. And it does. I'm not, I'm not saying it doesn't. But most democratic nations, as soon as that war ends, you know, I think America is the prime example. But as soon as that war ends, whatever bloated army existed the day before the war ended is going to be cut down to, I mean, if I said a quarter, that might be too much. So after the war, those industries that were just making nothing but bombs, well, what, what do they make after that? like bomb lamps, I, you know, some, obviously some production can be tooled to an, like retooled for some other purpose. But even if it does get retooled, you still have to think you don't probably need that much manpower. Not only is it the quote manpower I need, probably a lot of the women who are working in these factories as well are going to be without a job as all of the men who have just spent the last four years fighting a war are going to now need their jobs either back or just a job in general. So, you know, you have this this going on in post-war Britain. And then, not to mention, there's a worldwide pandemic. You know, the Spanish flu, inappropriately named, by the way. It should be called, most likely, I think the first instances of it were American soldiers getting ready to muster out of, um, I think it was a, man, I'm, I'm saying this now, it's going to be a bad quote. I think out of Kansas, but due to wartime censorship, no other nation was really reporting, oh shit, we have, you know, tons of people dying every day from some weird disease. The only country that was relatively neutral, Spain. So we first heard about the flu from Spain, hence the Spanish flu. Um, that's a quite reductive <laughs> uh, telling of that story, but essentially that's why we call it the Spanish flu. It had nothing to do specifically with Spain. Everybody was affected. Anyway, tangent over. So, you have the end of the war, so massive reduction in war production, 
not to mention the worldwide pandemic of the Spanish flu and a very soon-to-be-realized massive economic downturn, which kind of created the perfect environment for, I don't know, not wanting to spend money on tanks, planes, and ships. You know, we weren't fighting a war anymore. The war had ended. We assumed, everyone assumed, you know, there was going to be peace, you know, hopefully for a lot longer than it ended up being. But they had no reason to think, let's just keep producing tanks and shit for a war we're not going to fight. Okay. So this meant that the factories that were capable of producing things like armored fighting vehicles would at best remain at their current level of 1918 tank production. But more realistically, and far worse for an upcoming world war, would be that these industries would be shrunk down to more peacetime level of production and expansion. And it's also good to remember that this is not just happening in the UK. The rest of the world was contracting their war industries. It simply does not make sense for a government to continue on with the same level of war production during peacetime. There are quite a few more considerations of a government during peace than to consider war. After all, the real world is not some paradox game where you can always be on a war footing and preparing yourself for the next world conflict you're about to lay at the feet of everyone else. So what this means in 1940 terms is that the British army had what they considered enough. But by the time Dunkirk happened, the problem becomes clear and the danger very present. Churchill needed tanks. And a lot of them. We, uh, we won't be relitigating the entire British tank mission, but I had held back some notes from our earlier episodes when we detailed the production setup to better coincide with the British M3 Grant episode. So... We're doing the grant. Let's dip our toes into the British production just a little bit more. Now, of course, when I say British production, what I really mean is American production. Now, now, I understand the British were fully capable of producing their own homegrown tanks. But we are not talking about those. When we eventually get around to crossing the pond, properly, anyway and doing some Churchill, Crusader, or Cromwell talks, we'll get into the British domestic tank production capabilities. For now, though, we are well entrenched within the colonies. What are we going to say about British domestic production is this. In 1940, Britain was still very much what you might call an artisanal production, or... You could probably, like a craftsmanship production versus a mass production that was going on in the U.S. It, you know, which again, this, this was not outside the norm. You know, mass production was the new thing. Artisanal and craftsmanship, that was the norm. Germany would essentially operate like this throughout the war. Italy, Japan, and many others. Most industrial nations had not yet embraced the American-grown mass production style. And simply, just, it was new. You know, it was a relatively unknown and at, at this point in time, somewhat untested, at least for war production. 
obviously, you know, Ford was doing his thing. But, you know, craftsmanship production, it sounds, you know, that sounds good. Oh, it's highly, you know, high craftsmanship. But in reality, this meant that a lack of standardization between workshops was going to be minimal. Quality control, interchangeability, all of these things would suffer, which ultimately led to poor reliability amongst the British tanks. This is something that would improve as the war wore on. But when Dewar and the British tank mission had arrived in the States, American mass production was already well underway, thanks to the likes of the many skilled industrialists, like our boy Bill Knudsen, or not quite our boy, but still a contributor to the entire process of mass production amongst the automotive industry, Henry Ford, his son Edsel Ford, Fred Geyer, Henry Kaiser, and probably one of the most important men in the history of the arsenal of democracy, Albert Kahn. Kahn! Was quite literally an architect whose work was integral to the entire process of automization of the American industrial sector from the late 1800s until the day of his death in 1942. In a certain style of irony, Albert Kahn was a Prussian-born Jewish immigrant who, because of his contributions to the American industry, would ultimately bring the Nazi regime to its knees and then behead it. The only regrettable part of Mr. Albert Kahn's story is that he simply would not live long enough to see Hitler connect to the afterlife's Wi-Fi with a 9mm round emptying his vacuous dome piece in a bunker. Albert Kahn began his life in the Rhineland province of the state of Prussia in 1869, which is only a two-year span away from the unification of Germany in 1871, after the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 and some other wily Bismarckian policies like pressuring King Ludwig of Bavaria to reluctantly support unification, the German Empire would officially be born. Not that it really mattered that much to Albert, as his family would uproot their lives when he was just a young boy and move to Detroit, Michigan in 1881. In two years' time, the now 14-year-old Albert Kahn was A, finished with American public schools, B, now very fluent in English, and C, was hired on as an architectural, I guess, assistant or apprentice to a firm by the name of Mason and Rice. Pause. Let's pause for a second. Let's just piece this together. Because I always find that people from the 19th century... They, they don't sound real, and I guess the 19th century is just such a fascinating piece of history. Like, it's a, just a weird time. Think of it this way. A 12-year-old boy arrives from Germany, doesn't speak English, and within two years of arriving, he has determined he's done with public schooling at 14 years old. He's already held two other jobs at this point, but at 14, he is hired on by this architectural firm, Mason & Rice, which was a quite respectable firm at the time, where he quickly just becomes a draftsman. So this 
what would be in modern terms, this freshman in high school decides, eh, I've learned enough. And he strikes out into the world of architecture on his own. Like, holy shit. It's fascinating. I love it. And it should come as no surprise that in 1891, when Mr. Kahn was only 22 years old, he was awarded a traveling fellowship to study abroad in Europe, touring places like Germany, France, Italy, and Belgium, where he absorbs the styles of those beautiful nations. And remember, this is prior to the First World War, so much of that old medieval modern contemporary architecture of the time, contemporary of the time, was still standing, and standing basically pristine. So he goes, he absorbs all this information, he brings all of it home with him, and while he's working at Mason and Rice, and later with Nettleton, Kahn, and Trowbridge, another partnership that Kahn would enter with a couple other guys, if that was the end of his story, and Mr. Kahn just ran a successful firm for the rest of his life, and, you know, whatever, retired, and then died peacefully, it would have stood as a proud and inspiring story of perseverance and hard work. You know, the American dream. But this, this is not the end of Albert Kahn's story. Not even close. In 1902, joining up with his engineer brother, Julius, who himself would develop and revolutionize reinforced concrete. Let that sit in. This guy basically reinvents how to use concrete for buildings. So for the use in large practical applications like skyscrapers, huge industrial warehouses, and factories. The process itself was patented as the Kahn system and would, for the next 30 years, construct some of the nation's most memorable architectural marvels of their day, many of which are still standing today. The very first reinforced concrete automobile plant for Cadillac Motor Car Company, the Ford Motor Lamp Factory, the Packard Proving Grounds, the Detroit News Building, that one might be probably the most famous one, the Dearborn Inn, and actually, I take that back about the most famous one, Ford's Highland Park Plant was probably his most famous piece, but that's just that's just to name a few of the historical landmarks that Albert Kahn is responsible for. But wait, you're saying to yourself, are we doing a biography hour on the Panzer podcast today? Well, no. Maybe maybe something that Albert Kahn is better known for in regards to the Second World War might be the Detroit Arsenal tank plant, which was the first proper mass production factory to produce tanks. He was also responsible for Ford's gigantic Willow Run bomber plant which produced B-24 bombers during the war. This plant stands out because it had an assembly line over a mile long under a single roof. So yeah, Albert Kahn and William Knudsen, these two men should be kept close in mind when discussing the United States and the ability to wage materiel war against the Axis powers during World War II. Without them, and, and several others to be honest, but without these two, the war looks a hell of a lot different. 
I shouldn't have to remind my American listeners of when the Second World War actually began. September 1st, 1939, at least in Europe. Um, A fun aside, during my recent travels to London, uh, we took the opportunity and booked a tour at the Tower of London with a guided portion done by an active duty Yeoman warder. Uh, They may be better known as the Beef Eaters. And yes, the man on the Beef Eater gin bottle is a depiction of a Yeoman warder in their traditional uniform. Anyway, there were some, you know, some tour questions throughout regarding historical time frames and how the Tower of London would react during a siege, an invasion, its constructions, the many uses. Well, one such question um, I was singled out and asked, one, are you an American? Didn't realize I stood out that much. And two, when the Second World War started, which, of course, who are you talking to, buddy? Of course I knew the answer. And boy, did he give me some shit for it. Clearly you can mark time. Why did it take you lots so long to come help? Too much amusement from the crowd and myself. But in a lot of ways, he's right. It did take some time and a clandestine secret attack on a certain naval station before the Americans were even evolved officially. Uh, officially as a combatant. However, the American government, led by FDR, was still very much doing just about everything but open hostilities towards the Axis powers. Some might consider, you know, giving Britain ships and sending them supplies and cutting off supplies to Japan as a hostile act, but what I mean by that is there were no guns being fired necessarily. Cooperation between the Anglo-American governments was at an all-time high. It is something of amazement to think that in May of 1940, the British were stuck with their limited domestic supply of tanks, as well as the lack of capacity to, uh, you know, to the cooperative levels that we would see by February of 1941. According to the Dewar files, quote, The free interchange of components could be made between British contractors and U.S. contractors, exemplified in the supply of armor plate and 37mm guns by us to the U.S., and the supply of transmissions and 75mm guns from the U.S. to our very own contractors. This interchangeability ultimately gave way to a pooling of all free issues and allocation of such components that were in short supply by the U.S. ordinance to the contractors so as to obtain maximum possible overall production, end quote. There is a lot to be said about the timing, and a lot of the expedited war planning seemed to happen when everything else was falling into place precisely when it needed to. This British tank mission, led by Michael Dewar, you know, clearly had its own mind as to what they wanted out of this cooperation effort with the United States. Well, as we have previously noted, what the British initially wanted was not going to happen. You know, the Brits were 
maybe under the impression that they would just, you know, they'd come over with their own designs and now they could just use the American factories to produce these British design tanks. Well, very quickly, this notion was, you know, the U.S. disabused him of that notion as they simply refused to mass produce vehicles that the U.S. were not going to be using. Instead, the compromise here was offering to produce tanks of American design for the British so that both nations could use them. Knowing that this was the only deal to be had, Dewar and the British tank mission accepted this reality and decided on how they were going to navigate this deal in both keeping their own nation's need in mind while playing to the American strengths. The solution was, you know, of course it was going to be a compromise, allowing the British engineers and the designers some leeway in modifying American design tanks, which is how we, you know, ultimately this is how we end up with the M3 Grant along with the M3 Lee, two very nearly identical vehicles with slight variations that better suit the armored theory of each of the nations along with aligning itself with the industrial capacity of the United States and the British Empire. Quote, In the event of our wishing to have any modifications incorporated in the design of a tank or any additions, such as sand guards, the procedure is as follows. 1. Complete drawings have to be made of the modifications or additions. 2. These have to be submitted to the U.S. Ordnance Department for approval. 3. The need for the modification has to be explained. 4. After approval has been obtained, the drawings for the modification are issued by the Ordnance Department through the District Ordnance Office. End quote. This sounds simply, uh, you know, simple enough. Find a modification that you think is needed. Draw it up, explain it, get approved. Bam! Not too many steps or a red tape to get through, right, uh, guys? Quote, Our own contractors have always been most helpful as regards modifications, but with the end of direct British contracts, modifications will become more and more difficult, particularly as all the big producers are under pressure to get the greatest output and consequently resist every change in design. End quote. Okay, well, shit. That is an unfortunate rock and a hard place. Um, on one hand, sure, it's easy to get modifications drawn up, but approving them means changing production, which means uh, losing production speed, which means less tanks, which means, oh my God, the humanity. All right. Maybe not that dramatic, but, you know, let's remember there is a fucking war on and every single tank was needed and it was needed now. No, the U.S. doesn't care that you want a modified tea kettle in the rear of the fighting compartment. Uh, that last bit's a little hyperbolic, but the point is, unless the requirement for the modification was life or death, or something the British mission was willing to fight over, it could, and 
probably would get rejected or resisted by the big manufacturers of the M3 medium tank. It just so happens that a lot of the refused on the spot modifications which were requested would require a little more intervention. The British tank mission insisting to the U.S. Ordnance Department that there needs to be more flexibility with respect to the needs and wants of the British regarding their M3 medium tanks. You know, damn it, we're paying for them. So, okay, all right, all right. The Ordnance Department has agreed that they will establish some, some depots for Lend-Lease customers. These depots would allow far more control of the modifications made to U.S.-produced but British-destined vehicles. The first of these, in 1941, would be operated by none other than the Ford Motor Company of Pennsylvania. This was a step in the right direction, but would not be made immediately. You know, uh, these things take time. They take planning. They take time. You know, you're going to find a space. You got to find people. You got to blah, 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 right? Takes a little bit of time before becoming fully operational. This was unacceptable. Again, there is a freaking war on and the Brits need these tanks with these modifications and they need them now. Well, the Brits simply weren't going to wait for Ford to get their shit together and build the goddamn modification depot for these Lend-Lease vehicles. The British needed these modifications, okay? And they sure as shit weren't going to sit on their hands waiting for some damn Ford depot to get it done. So what's the solution? Well, an in-theater workshop was set up in December of 1941 that would receive the fresh orders of M3 medium tanks, the M3 Grant, which were shipped direct from these U.S. suppliers to the number 5 base Ordnance Depot at Tel El Kabir, Egypt. I apologize if I mispronounce that. It was here at the number 5 depot that field modifications would be made to better, let's just say, British up the M3 grants. These field mods consisted of things like sand shields, extra stowage racks, D-rings that were just welded onto the side, which could then be held, uh, you know, you could put straps to them to secure, you know, your blankets, your belongings. A lot of these modifications were things that the British had kind of already learned were necessary for tanks and their crewmen on campaign to carry out their mission. Further changes, which were approved by the MEE, that is to say the Mechanization Experimental Establishment in the Middle East. So M-E-E-M-E. Wait, yeah. Uh, The MEE at number five depot Uh, The changes they made were things like a flexible anti-aircraft mount for the Browning 50 Cal mounted to the roof of the M3 Grant, which a modification that the U.S. Army would also later adopt. Uh, There was also the modification that was actually copied from the U.S. Army Ordnance Department, whom had finally, after all this time, had decided to finally give up the fixed forward dual browning machine guns in front of the glacius 
Let's pour one out for the twins. A common practice was to simply weld metal plugs from the inside of the vehicle, though some, I guess you'd say enterprising engineers and mechanics, managed to weld lengths of steel rods into the holes so that the enemy might still believe the machine guns were there to, I don't know, frighten them from poorly aimed machine gun bullets. Uh, This modification served the primary purpose of reinforcing the front hull as extra ammunition would be stored in place of the machine guns in a now armored ammo stowage bin. The secondary purpose being that these extra weapons served very little in the way of practical application. The guns weren't, you know, you really couldn't aim them. They could not elevate or depress. Their only sight was that of the tracers and the driver looking out of his windshield. I mean, honestly, this is just a relic left over from the post-Great War tank designs of the early 1920s. And spoiler alert, not the last time we'll be discussing twin-mounted forward fixed dual machine guns in an American tank? Just you wait. Now, as I foreshadowed at the top of the episode, the British M3 Grant, at least the Grant 1, and the British nomenclature was a bit different from that of the United States. The cruiser tank Mark 1, or the Grant 1, is the equivalent to the plain US M3, with the exception, of course, being the turret, which was a different design altogether from that of the United States version of the M3. And to kind of put the kibosh on this whole US versus UK naming conventions, let me explain just a little bit. The Brits preferred to recognize the M3 medium tank by either the Grant or the Lee. This was based solely off of the turret, If it had a Lee turret, it was a Lee, or American version. If it had the Grant turret, it was a Grant, the British version. Furthermore, at least according to Dewar and the Dewar files, quote, The only criteria that the British used when assigning designation was the engine configuration. All Grants were either Grant 1 or Grant 2, depending on whether the power plant was an R975 or a 6046, end quote. Of course, the 6046 engine is a yet-to-be-discussed diesel engine. We will get there in due time. For now, let's just understand that the vehicle we are discussing today is the M3 Grant. Now, back to my original point. I alluded earlier that the Grant was only to be fitted with the M2 75mm gun, instead of having the luxury of having either the M2 or the M3 improved 75mm cannon, which were installed like uh, the American M3 tanks would. This can become confusing because an American M3 might have the longer-barreled M3 cannon, but it might also have the M2 cannon. It really just depended on what was available at the time of assembly. Now, this was not the case for our tea-drinking friends, because the order that they had placed with Empire Ordnance was for 2,500 75mm cannons. The initial order 
was for 2,175 millimeter M2 cannons, which had been assigned to the first batch of the 2,100 M3 Grant tanks to be produced by Press Steel, Pullman, and Baldwin. However, remember that extra order for 400 M3 Grant vehicles from Lima Locomotive? Well, the last bit of the Empire Ordnance purchase order actually did include 400 of the M3 version of the 75mm cannon, which we can only assume they were to be assigned to the M3 Grant vehicles that Lima was supposed to produce. The problem? Well, those 400 Lima-produced M3 Grants would never materialize, Instead, the order would transition into an order for the soon-to-be brand-new medium tank, the M4 Sherman, which just so happens would be using the 75mm M3 cannon as its main armament. So, in a way, it worked out in the end. But rest assured, the M3 Grant 1 medium tanks were all equipped with the shorter-barreled 75mm M2 cannon as its big main gun. This is notable, since you will notice the very early war models uh, that the M3 Grant was in service with. Uh, some of them would have um, the extra counterweight for the gyroscope stabilizer. Which, of course, the cliché of stating how poorly the stabilizer worked is actually mostly accurate. You've heard me say it before, and it's true. The early iterations of the gyro-stabilized gun system was just straight-up garbage time, through and through. However, most of the issues would have been actually, they would have been remedied by the time North Africa is really kicking into gear. The problem is... Um, well, so the big tell that an M3, it, that it was equipped with a gyro stabilizer, not necessarily that it was being used, uh, would be the added counterweight, which looked kind of like a donut at the end of the shorter 75mm M2 barrel. The M3 was long enough that it didn't need this extra counterweight to make sure the stabilizer worked. So there you have it. Um, the problem with the stabilizer, it wasn't, it wasn't always that the stabilizer itself was bad. It was the fact that by this time, many of the tankers had simply lost confidence in the device because of the earlier problems that they all found while trying to use the stabilizer without the counterweight or the longer 75mm M3 barrel, which of course, again, the British Grant did not have. We'll have to discuss this a little bit more in detail once we get into theater and get into some of the combat effectiveness and after action reporting of the M3. If we use just our eyeballs for differentiating between the two flavors of the M3 medium tank, I would like to believe the most obvious difference is obviously the turret. And it is. Uh, the most obvious difference, that is and departure from the American M3. The Lee. 
compared to the British M3, the Grant. According to the records in Doyle's M3 book, the first prototype of the Grant turret was available mid-December of 1940 and was installed by the end of that year. This original prototype version of the turret was not exactly what would be outfitted on production models of the M3 Grant. Quote, The turret at that time called for a rectangular loader's hatch, as well as an aperture for a two-inch smoke bomb projector. End quote. This rectangular hatch would be omitted from the production version of the M3 Grant. However, the ghost of the hatch would remain. And what I mean by ghost is that early casting provided by Pullman Standard contained the outline of where this rectangular hatch would go, along with the hinge mounts. But ultimately, you would never see them installed on any production models. Some photos exist of these early style turrets and their ghost hatch. So if you ever manage to see a top-down photograph of an M3, know that it's a very early M3 Grant. Uh, You might just catch sight of this interesting but quickly deleted modification to the M3 Grant medium tank. These ghosts would be eliminated in short order as the pattern for the casting would be remade excluding these elements from the get-go. In the second part of the quote, which describes a two-inch smoke bomb projector. Uh, Saying smoke bomb projector is hilarious. It's a mortar for smoke grenades. This aperture was fitted near the upper right of the turret face, which allowed for the crew within to load, fire, and ultimately reload the smoke bombs as needed. Like a lot of things during this early stage of accommodating the British designers, the initial M3 grants that came off of the production line would not have these mortars fitted as the U.S. assemblers were awaiting delivery from Canada, which these deliveries were first to be anticipated in the kind of the end of February, but most likely March of 1942. In the meantime, until deliveries of these mortars could be made, a one-inch that is 25 millimeter, piece of armor was welded over the aperture in the turret. This they referred to as the hood plate. The second most obvious outward difference between a Grant and a Lee would be found on the tracks. Well, maybe not on the tracks, but on top or covering them. The British had insisted upon installing sand guards over the return track run, which is funny when you consider the environment the M3s would, you know, first be used in, North Africa, a place where dust and sand exist in abundance, and something that can quickly betray your position to the enemy when conducting maneuvers. Gigantic clouds of dust could be seen for miles and miles, or kilometers and kilometers. The British were keenly aware of this, but the M3s did not come standard with these types of guards. In fact, the M3 initially had rubber rear fenders or basically just mud flaps on the rear of the sponsons to help keep the dirt and what have you from being kicked up. 
To say that this system was incredibly lacking is an understatement. Initial production of the grants would see factory-installed sand guards somewhat inconsistently. Pullman would begin installing them in September of 1941, though it would not be until early in 1942 that all of the producers were installing these sand guards as standard equipment. According to the Dewar files, quote, Sand guards for grants now in production by one firm, Pullman Standard, Press Steel and Baldwin to start shortly. Press Steel shipped 63 tanks deficient of sand guards. Baldwin will produce guards by February 1st. Approximately 160 of Baldwin-produced tanks will be deficient, and deficiencies will not, I repeat, will not be made up. Pullman and Press Steel are immediately shipping 94 sets to cover their own deficiencies. If MEE has equipped these tanks already, surplus can be used on Baldwin tanks arriving without. End quote. I find it very humorous that Baldwin just refused to make up the deficiencies, whereas Pullman and Press Steel were a little bit more accommodating. I want to note here that the MEE in the above quote is once again pointing to the British Mechanization Experimental Establishment Depot that was accepting these shipments of British M3s from their American producers and then quickly field modifying them up to the British standards for fighting in North Africa. There was a slight difference between the factory installed sand guards and the aftermarket MEE custom guards. These new guards, the ones that the MEE were putting on, were a little bit more smooth of a curve over the leading edge, whereas the factory-installed guards are kind of more just angular. So when viewed in profile, the factory-applied guards slope upwards at a point about halfway back on the drive socket. The MEE, patterns number 112 Alpha and Bravo, these sand guards, they don't turn upward until well to the rear of the drive sprocket. At the rear flank of the tank, the British-made guards have a steep upward angle ahead of the idle wheel, while the factory shields have a more gentle slope beginning at about the midpoint of the rearmost bogey. I will have to post pictures of the two because the difference is slight but a little bit noticeable in something that the above paragraph probably didn't help you consider. The third outward difference between an American M3 and a British M3 would be the specially designed tracks that the British had developed for operations in the desert environment, namely sand. Now, I've often read about these, um, which you will you will see in passing, known as the double eye track, which if you look at the track, it looks like there's just two eyes, like the letter I stamped into the rubber. Like you'll, you'll see it repeat. I'll, again, I will post a photo, um, but just suffice to say this track was the same. It had to be the same 16 inch or 40 centimeter width. However, the track pad itself was about an inch or two and a half centimeters thicker 
than the default T41 American trackpad. Another British only, though I just want to say that the Americans looked into it and they even designed one, but it was, the British actually tried it and they kind of worked with it. Eh, mixed results. But what they wanted to do was to add uh, an additional external fuel tank that they could jettison. These cylindrical tanks resided on the rear on the right sponson. Just the one. They weren't, uh, you know, they weren't used in a Kimbo. It was a very asymmetrical thing. The tank itself, the fuel tank that is, it offered the M3 an extra 30 miles or 48 kilometers of further distance. The extra tank itself had to have the following capabilities. Quote, capable of disconnection by control from the interior of the tank. Also capable of being jettisoned by control from the interior of the tank at the will of the tank commander, whether full, whether empty, and of sufficient durability to withstand the shock of being jettisoned without impairing the reuse value. End quote. The American company, B.F. Goodrich, a well-known rubber manufacturer, made some headway on the development of such external fill tanks. They even created a self-sealing, read rubber-lined, fuel tank that was capable of the above parameters. However, the U.S. Armored Forces just weren't that interested. The British, however, designing their own fuel tank, really liked this idea, and you will see plenty of examples and photographs of M3 Grants, you know, palling around with this extra fuel tank on the right rear end of the tank. There are plenty of photos without these jettisonable fuel tanks as well, but the extra mileage, especially in the desert, would go a long way in extending the range of the M3s in the deserts of North Africa. That will just about do it for most of the external differences. So let's move on to some internal differences between the M3 Lee and the M3 Grant. These would be a little, uh, you know, somewhat subtle as you can't just see them, at least from the outside. Uh, one of these that I found particularly interesting were the steering levers. Now, it didn't start out that way, but the Brits figured out that by lengthening the steering levers, but just a couple inches, this would mitigate some issues that they had found with the steering and braking systems while using the M3, or testing it, rather. The problem? Well, initially, the M3 series of tanks would all come equipped with the high-con, hydraulically boosted steering. This steering system, while well-intentioned, was actually kind of shit. The high-con system was problematic, mostly due, like a lot of new innovations at the time, from a lack of trial and error. A hydraulically boosted steering system sounds like a modern day invention, so the idea of the 1940 version conjures up some images of a lot of moving parts, a bladder of some sort, and probably some bottleneck check choke points where failures can and obviously did occur. Aberdeen was not ignorant to this problem either. They were the ones helping doing the testing to overcome this issue. 
the standard short lever without high con boost required 60 pounds or 27 kilos of force to execute a 30 foot turn at five miles per hour or eight kilometers per hour. With the HiCon system, and by now the initial problems with the HiCon system had been mitigated, not eliminated, but improved. So now this new improved HiCon steering system reduced this effort from 60 pounds down to 20 pounds or 9 kilos of force to execute the same turn. However, it was noted that by simply elongating the steering levers without HiCon steering, that same turn was able to be done using only 24 pounds or 10 kilos of force to do the maneuver. More importantly than just that is the fact that with the long lever steering, stopping the tank from 20 miles per hour, 32 kilometers an hour, took only 18 feet longer than the 50 feet required to stop the tank using the HiCon system. So if we're keeping score, non-HiCon, 60 pounds of force. Improved Hycon, 20 pounds of force. And finally, no Hycon, long lever, 24 pounds of force, and comparative braking power. The report from Aberdeen made their recommendations to the Ordnance Department known. Quote, Existing standard Hycon booster systems be modified with the hydraulically actuated control valves. Future steering installations employ the long lever steering linkage without the hydraulic booster system. End quote. Simply put, the HiCon system was just too much of a hassle to deal with when they could simply lengthen the steering levers. All of this taking place before the end of 1941. So really, this, this change happens pretty quickly. I mention all of this because before any of the British M3 grants were ever produced, the British tank mission had identified this HiCon steering system as something they really wanted absolutely no part in. And in their drawings for must-haves, longer steering levers were put forth for British eyes only and included in their list of approved modifications. The Dewar files even indicate in December of 1941 Quote, the U.S. are dispensing with high-con control and are fitting 5-inch longer levers on gearbox to increase leverage. This permits steering without high-con. End quote. Funnily enough, the British actually retained this improved high-con system in the vehicles as a default sort of backup until February of 1942 when they finally just got rid of them. Which makes sense. You know, when the HiCon system is operating, it did improve both steering and braking. It just wasn't reliable enough as one might need during tank combat. Imagine having to throw around 60 pounds of force just to make a slight turn. Sure, you know, you might be fine for a while, but after an hour, two hours, you know, I don't recall the swole army operating the M3 medium tank. Ultimately, replacing the HiCon system would be a Chrysler-developed self-energizing braking system, which would just kind of dispense with the need for the HiCon system. Um, you know, the self-energizing brake with a long lever system was just, just perfect enough for the M3. A story maybe for another day, um, as it, it does come in later in life for the M3, so 
Chrysler's self-energizing brake system, not in the early war production. Another internal deviation from the M3 Lee is the wireless set number 19, which was installed in the rear bustle of the Grant's turret. British doctrine at the time dictated that the commander of the tank be in charge of and have the controls over the radio for his tank. The number 19 set was introduced in 1940, replacing the earlier number 11 wireless set, which replaced the number one radio. Without diving into pre-war British radio sets, we're going to maintain focus on the wireless set number 19. The number 19 wireless was designed to be used in a more mobile way than the more static-friendly number 11 wireless set, which was more appropriate for things like the regimental HQ, but, you know, early on did find a home in many vehicles and even some tanks until the number 19 became available. The number 19 was simply more durable and more capable than the number 11. I do wish to point out that in the long-range communication department, the number 11 would prove a bit better, managing a maximum range of something like 20 miles or 32 kilometers, and notably was used by the long-range desert group for behind enemy lines communications. That being said, the number 19 set was practically perfect for use within a tank. A complete set, that is, sender and receiver, along with the supply unit and carrier, weighed a total of 86 pounds, or 39 kilos, which was capable of a few... Nah, there were just various types of communication. The A set, which was for long-range communications in the 2 to 8 megahertz frequency range, You had the B set, which was used for short-range communications in the 230 to 240 megahertz VHF frequency range. And finally, the intercom system, which was for communications within the tank amongst the crew members. According to the manual, the A set provided a range of 10 miles or 16 kilometers on AM radio, allowing voice and up to 20 miles or 32 kilometers using CW radio or Morse code. All of this using a simple 8-foot vertical antenna on top of a vehicle. The number 19 set famously was first proven in combat during the rather unfortunate failed Dieppe raid of 1942. There was a one Major Gordon Rolfe, who was posted with the Calgary Tank Regiment of the Canadian Armored Force. Major Rolfe, who was situated in a scout car which was being towed by a landing craft tank towards their objective. The original plan was for this tank to drive straight forward until the scout car could disengage and be freed of its tethers and then, you know, pal around the battlefield doing scout car stuff. Unfortunately... The tank that was towing Major Rolf's car ran up against the seawall. Well, in a, I don't know, hurried response, threw it in reverse and crushed the scout car. Luckily for Major Rolf, he was able to escape unharmed. 
The uh, scout car, however, less than lucky. While the operation was ongoing, and let's just be honest, failing at this point, communication positions were just collapsing. Brigadier General Southam, the commander of the 6th Brigade, had his communications equipment run over by a tank. Uh, a different tank, a lot of that going on. And was therefore out of communications with his battalions and the overall Force HQ. The situation was bad, but now it's deteriorating, and pretty quickly. Major Rolf made it clear to Brigadier Southam that his number 19 wireless set, which was still inside this crushed scout car, was operational. And the number 19 was capable of handling all of the frequencies required, including communications with the tanks. Major Rolf and Brigadier Southam were joined by signals operator Lance Corporal A.G. Wills, who took over the operation of actually managing the number 19 set. His rapid and accurate frequency changes, Lance Corporal Wills, was mentioned in the dispatches. And if you guys aren't aware, uh, this is an incredibly high honor for those serving in the Commonwealth Armies, it's not to say that the, and when I say Commonwealth, that means um, Britain, India, New Zealand, Canada, Australia. At the time, they were kind. Of, I think they still go by Commonwealth, but it's a little less. Um, it's a little less formal these days. But the Commonwealth nations, they were awarded very similar awards, mostly basing everything off the British Army. But at the time, and I think even it must be still to this day. So I apologize. I. Not up to date with my British military stuff, but being mentioned in the dispatches, just having your name was a great honor. That was like receiving, I don't know, a bronze, maybe even a silver star in the American army. Major Rolf himself was the only man awarded a distinguished service order whilst in service with the Royal Canadian Corps of Signals during the Second World War. From that point on, the number 19 wireless was you know, that was the radio. It was a formidable radio that was used well into the 1960s, uh, you know, albeit mostly as a training aid by that point. But even today, many, and I mean many, amateur radio enthusiasts still collect, restore, and use the number 19 wireless set, many of which can be found for well under $1,000 in very restorable shape. It almost makes me want to take on a new hop. Nope, no, 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 no. Better nip that right in the bud. Speaking of the radio set, another quick difference between the Lee and the Grant models was also internally. This is where the M3 Lee, the Americans, would have its own radio set, either the early SCR245 or the more common SCR508. However, in the British M3 Grant, this is where they would store 60 rounds of 37mm ammunition in an unarmored ammo bin. Finally, some of the more nitty-gritty examples of differences between the M3 Grant and the M3 Lee, which are relatively minute and focused, which, if you're still listening to this podcast, is exactly what you're here for. So the M3 Grant 
had a crew of six compared to seven in the M3 Lee. Of course, that number would go down to six, but initially seven crewmen in the M3 Lee. The weight of the Grant was actually slightly heavier than that of the Lee. This was due in part to the turret and some other considerations because it wasn't by a whole lot that the weight was different. The M3 Grant weighed 62,000 pounds or 28,122 kilos when combat laden or 28 tons. The Lee was 61,500 pounds or 27,895 kilos or 27.8 tons. Without a combat load, the M3 Grant weighed 58,000 pounds or 26,308 kilos, making it 26.3 tons, whereas the M3 Lee weighed 57,400 pounds or 26,000 kilos, which is 26 tons without a combat load. The power to weight ratio did not really suffer that much. I mean, like one tenth of a difference. So for the Grant, 11 horsepower per ton was the net for the Grant compared to 11.1 horsepower per ton for the Lee. 12.9 horsepowers per ton was the gross power to weight ratio of the Grant, while the Lee was rated at 13 horsepower per ton. Again, not a big difference. Same goes for the ground pressure, 12.7 PSI versus 12.6 PSI, or 0.89 kilogram force per square centimeter versus 0.88 kilogram force per square centimeter. These are what is known as negligible. Ammunition loadouts were a little bit different, which I kind of found curious. Something I think we'll have to dig into a little bit more once we get into the combat of the M3 medium tank. But suffice to say, it looks like the Brits wanted more 75mm rounds than 37mm, and about half as much of the 30 caliber, and half as much, again, of the 45 caliber rounds. The M3 Grant loadout had 65 rounds of 75mm, compared to the Lee, which only had 50. The Grant had 128 rounds of 37mm, the Lee had 178. The Grant carried 4,084 rounds of 30 caliber ammunition for the various machine guns, while the M3 Lee carried 9,200. The M3 Grant carried only 640 rounds of the 45 caliber ammunition for both sidearms and the Thompson. The Lee, on the other hand, carried 1,200 rounds. Finally, the 14 rounds of 2-inch smoke bombs in the M3 Grant and the M3 Lee had none. Finally, the last little bit was the fire protection equipment was identical. Well, kind of. They obviously had the two mounted carbon dioxide extinguishers, along with the two portable CO2 extinguishers, along with two portable pyrene fire extinguishers. Otherwise, the two vehicles were identical in their combat loadout, 
periscopes, protectoscopes, fuel quantity, uh, oil quantity, etc. Which, for what it is worth, this makes the most sense. You would not wish to have something too different so that it throws off the mass production ability of these vehicles. And honestly, I truly don't believe the American production system would have allowed for too many modifications that would lead to any kind of slowdown in the production process. And the proof is in the pudding. I mean, the Dwar files note it. We obviously see that there are some differences between the M3 Lee and the M3 Grant, but you know, the main components, like the actual chassis itself, stayed relatively static. All right, folks, that is, that is going to just about do it for this episode. I want to say thank you for being patient as I was traveling to and from Britain. I appreciate everyone's patience with the episode release schedule as of late. And, you know, again, I apologize for not getting this episode out yesterday. My audio interface was giving me some issue. Uh, I just had to, I replaced I replaced the USB cable. Super not important, but it's working now, obviously. Another little, I regret to inform you that the follow-on to this episode, which is episode 212, which again, is not 212, it's just season two, episode 12, will have to also be delayed. Now look, this is because, much like my holiday to Britain was to celebrate a close friend's wedding, I will be attending another wedding this following weekend, and I won't be back in town until like midweek after that. I know my friend's wedding schedule and my vacation time don't necessarily excite or interest any of you, but I like to be transparent. I know for me personally, if I try and rush another episode out, it just won't be any good. I won't be satisfied and I'll either leave you questioning my decision to rush a bad episode or I'll have to cut a good episode short. My point is, the next episode won't be released until April 16th, which is going to be a few weeks out. The reason for this is I generally need two weeks to read, write, record, edit, and post an episode. Most of the the heavy reading has been long finished, but throughout the season, I periodically will pick up a book and finish a book that I think will add flavor to my episodes. So for the Sherman series so far, I've finished about five, uh, maybe six books that I didn't know I needed to read until I started writing some of these episodes and doing a little bit of extra research on the spot and checking some footnotes. So... So bear with me, we'll be back on schedule just as soon as everyone I know stops falling in love and deciding to get married. To assuage the anguish that you might feel, I will be running a sale on the Panzer shop from now until June 1st, or May 31st at 11.59pm. We shall call it the Spring Sale. Use code PANZERSPRING20. That's Panzer Spring, the number two zero, to get 20% off your entire order from the Panzer shop at thepanzerpodcast.bigcartel.com. This will act as both a thank you and a sorry for you being my loyal listeners. 
and to also maybe, you know, let's finish clearing out my sticker inventory so I can put in another order and maybe, just maybe, finish the prototypes of the new stickers I intend to release before the year's out. So stay tuned. As always, I can be reached via email at thepanzerpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at thepanzerpod, and on Instagram at thepanzerpodcast. But however you're listening, I would super appreciate it if you could drop me a rating. It does help us reach new audience members, and as always, I just really appreciate it. Until next time, I'm John Burgess. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 